welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. I'm Freya Parr, the magazine's digital editor and staff writer, and this week I spoke to the British DJ, broadcaster and TV presenter Edith Bowman. Bowman's career started as a newsreader on MTV, a job which led to numerous other presenting gigs, including Top of the Pops and coverage of the UK's biggest music festivals for BBC Radio and TV. She presented weekend programmes on both Radio 1 and 6 Music for many years, before leaving the BBC in 2016 to work on the Soundtracking podcast. This project is still going strong five years later, with Bowman interviewing leading filmmakers about their artistic processes and the role music plays in their films. We spoke via Zoom on a very rainy afternoon during the UK lockdown. We started off with Bowman telling me about how she's found the process of broadcasting and recording from home. It's so bonkers though, just kind of stepping into work, you know, like like into a room. It's a bit like um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of, there's no sort of escape from... It's, it's just quite funny. It's been amazing, to be honest. I'm very lucky that I've been really busy and stuff with things, but... Um, how do you feel about approaching the kind of nomination season? Have you got predictions that you've been enjoying over the last year that you were interested to see have made it? Um, yeah, there's some really fantastic things. And what's really nice, I think, as well about this year is that a lot of the smaller films mm-hmm. are kind of getting more attention. You know, your Saint Maud's, your Come With Horses, Baby Teeth as well. This fantastic film, first film from this Australian um, director, Shannon Murphy. Um, and that's what I've really, I'm really happy about as well is that these, you know, they're up there with your Manx and things like that. You know, these big, you know, established directors and creatives like Fincher. Um so I think that it's it's really healthy in a way. Um, and it's nice to have a mix there. Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, who I think is the most exciting, sort of one of the, one of the most exciting female filmmakers out there as well. Um, and what she's done with that film. And I was lucky enough to chat to her and hear about the whole process of that and the journey that her and Frances McDormand went on together to make that just sounds mind-blowing. But you get the energy from it when you watch it on screen. Um, and also things like... Um, 40-year-old version, which is this brilliant film written, directed, starring this brilliant um, American, she's a bit of a kind of polymath, really, um, called Rada Blank. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice to see that get recognition in the long list as well. So, yeah, there's loads. Yeah, and the scores, the score for St Maud has been pretty heralded. Across the board, those indie films have still managed to get brilliant orchestral writing and... Yeah, well, it's Adam's first score. You know, mm-hmm. it's his first film that he scored and it's so it's so accomplished and it's so entwined in the film and the narrative and the emotion of it as well and the depth of it. And also similarly with um, Nick Rowland's Calm With Horses, you know, Ben from Blank Mass and, and that score that he made for that, which I think is it's definitely one of my scores of the year. I think it's extraordinary. Just in terms of how complex it is as well and what he had to do with it, both in terms of... You know, there's a kind of diegetic element to it with club scene in there as well and how he manages to to kind of weave in and out of that, which I thought was so clever. Um, but I thought that they, they did an extraordinary job with that as well. Mm, particularly when you think of all of the musicians recording from home and it being sewn together virtually. Yeah, and I think, well, I think they were quite lucky that they, I mean, Ben kind of works quite remotely anyway, but I think that if you look at something, I think in terms of the accomplishment and the restrictions of the pandemic, you look, you have to look at Mank and what they were able to achieve with that. 
you know, speaking to, you know, I still can't quite believe that I did a Zoom chat with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It's like, what? <laughs> um, but getting them to to talk in depth about that process and how they were able to do it, um, you know, instrument by instrument, um, player by player, that's how they had to record it. It's just crazy, and then how you're able—they were able to put all that together for it to sound not just seamless, but the authenticity of the period that they were trying to create as well. That sort of, you know, it had to have that sonic re- relevance to that period. Fincher was kind of really adamant about it, about it sounding like a, you know, a, a an orchestration recorded back in that time. A, a feat I have no idea, you know, but so amazing that they were able to, able to accomplish that. Yeah, particularly, like you say, with that, the period in which it's set and a lot of the the reviews of it have said it's a film for film obsessives because it's kind of that golden era. And I think you're right in that if they've got sli- something slightly wrong with the references musically, yeah. people would have just been on their back about it. And they've got some really lovely moments in there as well, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, f- what, what I get from that film is just how much of a film fan Fincher is, how much he loves film and how much he wanted to celebrate film within this film and and the way that they've done this score as well there's there's different elements to it you know there's big band elements there's jazz elements there's almost kind of like Laurel and Hardy silent cinema moments to it as well you know and there's a scene where Gary Oldman um is slightly intoxicated you know this character's intoxicated and he falls over a a kind of carriage of luggage at a train station and the the little bit of score to go with that is just so perfect I was lucky enough to speak to to do a Q&A with with Gary Oldman and, and David Fincher, and they talked about that scene, and and Gary talked about how Finch, you know, Fincher historically makes people do eight million takes, sort of thing. But I got him to talk to me about why he does that, and it was so interesting. Um, and for the way, the why he does is because he's got to feel it as a director watching that scene be filmed. He has to feel what he's trying to get from that scene, and he will only say cut when he's got it. No matter how long it, it takes. Exactly. And Gary said that they did he did that scene where he has to fall over the cases nearly one too many times for his for his spinal cord. Sense of humor failure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um but yeah, I mean it didn't scar him. He's he's well up for going back for more from what he said. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe you spoke to Trent Reznor and asked Atticus Ross as well. Oh that. seriously, it was just I I couldn't I was so nervous. <laughs> Don't blame I was me. So so nervous and I'd kind of you know I I I you know it's it's one of those things where like they've not really been doing it for that long really when you think about it but what they've done and also particularly because that first score you know for social network you know they'd done bits and bobs before but not nothing on that scale and that obviously started the relationship with Fincher um but that social network score was just so important to the film wasn't it in terms of yeah yeah, it's a really good example of 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 how important the soundtrack is to a film. appearing in a lot of the nominations again this year because of their music on soul yeah which is 
vastly different. Totally. Yeah. And, um, you know, and they did in, in the space of like a year or whatever, they did Mank, Soul and Watchmen. You know, and that's like three very different. And they were, but they were great talking about Pixar. You know, the idea of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, like being part of the Pixar world. But he was like so funny about it. He's like that. Yeah, man, you go in there and everybody's kind of, they just love what they do. And it's so positive. He's like, you know, any day I'm feeling bad, I just want to go into Pixar and hang out and everything's going to be all right. Um, you know, and they were really scared about it. And but they were what was amazing was Pete Doctor just absolutely embraced them with it and just took them on board more so than just being composers. You know, he, you know, the way that the, the, the animation works and stuff is that the the animation is not done right till the end almost, because it can't be. You know, everything else has got to be in place. So they were privy to the journey of the the aesthetic of the film. And I think that a lot of the aesthetic of the film in the end was influenced by what they created, really. Um, so he was like, he was so so in awe of, of you know, Pete Doctor asking their opinion about things um, along the way about characters and narrative and emotion and, and visual style of things as well, which, yeah, I think gave them even more confidence in terms of what they were writing for the for part of the score, because obviously John Batiste was, um, you know, kind of involved in this with the jazz side of things. Do they work with John Batiste on that? Well, there had to be a kind of synergy between, you know, the the two things. There was there was a lot of uh there was a lot of conversations and there was one particular track that they all worked on together. So I think that that was almost the kind of jumping off point. But I think that um from from the way that they talked about it, they very much did their stuff first. And then um and then I think this track they did together then informed what John did to kind of you know, that link the two worlds almost in a way. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So you interviewed them for soundtracking, didn't you? Could you tell me a yeah. little bit about how soundtracking came to be? Is it, yeah. Was it 2016 it started? Yeah. So um, we launched it myself and my friend Ben. And it's, you know, it's it's the two of us that work on it, really. It's just a little, little two-man team. We launched it back in 2016 and it came out of frustration, to be honest. Um, I was doing a sort of, similar show on six music and um we'd done i think maybe two series of it where they gave us you know it's like four shows in a kind of rotation slot and then we got another four shows and then as they kind of gave us our our third series we were i sort of said to them look i could do this every week easy i think because i've built up a a really good relationship with a lot of the film companies and you know starting to kind of um, people like what they're hearing sort of thing and no one's really having a conversation about music and film but they just didn't have the slot for it and the kind of the icing on the cake was really when we were given five four or five slots I can't remember exactly and they took one away because of some kind of scheduling and I'd already booked the guests and I just didn't want to look like a dick basically um, and so 
I was like, you can't, you know, this is this is my reputation on the line here as well, sort of thing. So we were like, do you know what? Let's why don't we go and do this ourselves and we can do it our way and we've got no kind of goalposts really. Cause I think with every, you know, if you're part of a a, a bigger picture of a a, a a radio station, whatever that radio station is, there are goalposts in terms of, you know, the the audience, the listenership of that. But for us, it was kind of like, this is a blank canvas. We can speak to whoever we want within the realms of soundtracking. And that was just absolutely liberating. So then it was a case of, right, well, where do we start? So we spoke to, we got a friend of ours to help us with the kind of, you know, the sort of technical side of, of how you actually where do you, what do you do to do a podcast and where does it get published and all this kind of stuff. So another Ben helped us out with that. And then it was a case of me just going and trying to get some guests. So I had done quite a lot of work with Disney and uh, I knew that Lion King was was coming up. And so I I, I said, look, I said, I'm going to launch this podcast. I'd love to get John Favreau on it. To talk. And they were like, no one is talking to him about the music. And I was like, well, I can't. <laughs> And so I said, but we're not going to be launching it until, you know, August, till we've got some interviews in the can. And so they were like, well, fine, you can hold that off because then, you know, by that back then it was theatrical release and then a couple of months down the line it was the home ends release. Um, and so they were like, well, if you hold it for the home ends release, then yeah, great. So I went and John Favreau was our first interview and he was fantastic. So, you know, we went and talked a bit about Jungle Book and about him, you know, recording those tracks with Bill Murray and Christopher Walken and, you know, having a, obviously having a, being respectful of the original, but but what he wanted to do with it sonically. But then we went back and we talked Swingers and we talked Chef and we talked Elf and, and it was amazing. And then that was kind of like a great calling card to then move forward. So it was a case of approaching people and go, look, we're launching this podcast. We've got John Favre in the bag. Would you be up for doing it? But we really wanted our first episode to be a bit of a a sign of what we were all about. And so for us, we had Ben Wheatley as our first guest because A, we love the work that Ben's done and we just wanted to celebrate British film and we wanted to celebrate independent film and we wanted to show that we weren't going to be um, kind of dictated to by, by it being big names um, and so that was kind of really important to us. And Ben's been back four times um, since then. He he's currently stands at the most returning, the highest returning guest. Um, and he's brilliant. I love Ben. He's so much fun to talk to. We did an episode with him and Clint Mansell together as well, which was brilliant. Um, and then from that point on, we just, we, we just, we went on and we just cracked on with it. And we've been so lucky that since we launched it in August 2016, we've missed two weeks. And I'm I can't quite believe it to be honest. And I but I I love doing it. It's my absolute passion project. And Ben, you know, I book all the guests, I record the audio, send it to Ben. He does his kind of Jedi skills on it and then posts it up and then I do all the little social bits and stuff. And sometimes I'm a bit behind on that because I'm not, you know, it's trying to uh, yeah, it's, it's actually quite, it's, you know, and then, and, you know, we don't really make any money from it. I, I make enough to pay Ben, but that's not what it's about. It's about, you know, everything else that I do almost kind of facilitates me being able to do this podcast. Was your initial angle to interview 
directors and the people from that side rather than the composers where where did that kind of fit in there was no kind of agenda really it was just a case of having a conversation about film and music and I knew that I wanted to at some point speak to Cliff Martinez to Clint you know there were certain ones that I definitely wanted to get a hold of and I knew I could probably get a hold of them um, and there are still a load that I want to get a hold of. I'm not sure if I ever will. You know, John Williams being top of the list. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I hound his people every. I don't hound. Well, I, I mean, they probably see it's hounding every week. Um, but no, it was just about seeing who was around, who we could get access to, but also trying to find people to have conversations that we just felt like weren't being had so a music you know we had Sarah Guy's music supervisor on you know she'd only done maybe three or four things uh, big well kind of big things she'd done a lot but it was just really nice to open up that conversation and find out what music supervisor does you know and, and explain that and allowing a wider audience to to understand what a music supervisor does. So there was no kind of, that was the, what I was saying about there being no goalposts. You know, we, so we've spoken to, you know, producers, directors, yeah, um, composers, writers, um, actors as well. You know, where it's right, there's some great, you know, Ewan McGregor was brilliant talking about Moulin Rouge, but then also his um, TV series that he does with Charlie because they're really involved in the music. Um and so that was kind of really interesting. So when it's right, you know, we, we'll kind of bring in talent in front of the camera. But um, but yeah, there's no, never say never to anything really with it. But composers, I would say more, more so than ever in the last year, have been much more accessible because of the pandemic, because they are... Uh, they're reachable you know it's uh, for me it's much easier you just, you just send a link now on on zoom like we're chatting and I can chat to Ludwig Gorenson twice in the space of three months or Terence Blanchard um Harry Gregson Williams there have been so many that I've just uh Pinner Toprak just so many sort of composers in particular that I've not had the I would not have had the uh, the opportunity to speak to in an, in a, a normal environment and situation because a they're never normally part of the unless I seek them out or ask specifically it would always they would never be kind of thrown your way but that's definitely changing yeah because they're becoming household names in and of themselves aren't they and people are starting to sit up and take notice of the the music and film a bit more I think as well than they have Mm. do you think the the kind of obviously it's impossible to do at the moment but that trend of live live orchestra with films has helped that yeah, I think that that's a brilliant thing. I mean, I, I took I took my kids to see a couple of the Star Wars films at Royal Albert Hall, and that was just extraordinary. Just, um, just to physically see how much music there is in the film. You know, when you're sitting listening there, it becomes almost you take it for granted. Absolutely, but when you're sat there watching, you know, the London London Symphony Orchestra, I think it was. Yeah. Um, you know those incredible talented musicians. And there's a break quite clearly because they need one because <laughs> they're pretty much playing non-stop for two and a half hours. Um, and I love that. And then I, I was lucky enough to see um, Clint did Moon at the Barbican as well. That was that was so emotional. There's something about the physicality of being in a room with the musicians and the reverberations and the physical reaction to music being played in the room whilst you watch the film. 
it's kind of like nothing else really Mm. that score is incredible as well because it kind of merges orchestral with electronics as well did you get to see that kind of play out in front of you yeah there was it was and it was and and he was so nervous about it as well because he'd never really done it um and just in terms of of making it happen and work out how it would happen um you know and, and even sort of you know Carly who who did the original um piano on on that and how important that kind of piano is as well and I love that that's such an important instrument within that score um and to watch that kind of grand piano there with the musicians but then also um Clint you know with his laptop and doing all that and stuff yeah it was brilliant score for Rebecca didn't he yeah it's a very different score for him but I think it's so beautiful and I know the film's not had the best response sort of thing but I mean I I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed as well I think I don't know whether it's because I spoke to Ben about it I saw it first and I spoke to Ben about it for a couple of things for an episode of the podcast and also I did a couple of Q&A's with him and just hearing his his um his intention for it and then watching it again, and and it kind of made sense. Mm. Um, you know, it, it was it wasn't never meant to be a remake of the Hitchcock. It was it was you know it was Jane Goldman's adaptation of the book. So that it's kind of hard when there's something there existing already that has such kind of um, fondness and you know kind of critique there already about it. But yeah, no, I I I think that score was beautiful. And how do you tend to listen to film scores in general? I, I normally, you know, sit and watch. I watch the film and try and just let the film, just watch it as a film fan. And that's one thing that I get, I get a little bit kind of like, oh, uncomfortable with when people describe me as a film critic or a <laughs> journalist, because I'm not, I'm a film fan. And that's where this podcast comes from and that's how I always try and approach stuff so I I, I tend to not really read reviews on things I, I, I always want to try and come into something completely you know fresh faced and have no no kind of influences and um so I so yeah I'll watch the film and then if I have the luxury of being able to watch it again without you know having a link then I'll kind of sit and make notes and then I'll kind of listen to the score just on its own and there's some scores that it's easy to listen to them on their own and they're meant they're meant to be to have their own life and existence outside of the film and there are some that are not and there's nothing wrong with that because you know the music is is not there as a as as the composer's piece of work it's there to facilitate the story and the narrative and the characters and it's part of the jigsaw but there are sometimes where those scores are so incredible that they do fill up fit a purpose of being their own thing as well. What are the kind of film scores that you love but don't really work as listening separately to the film? Um, I mean, I think one of my favourite scores over the last couple of years in terms of it being 
so important and brilliant with the film was Mika Levy's Monosh. I think that that the the sonic scape of what she created for that film was so perfect. But I, it's not something that I could sit and listen to on, you know, in you know, sitting whilst I'm trying to work or whatever or making dinner sort of thing because it it is so heightened. It is so specific to those to that environment, to those characters, to the to the narrative. But then something like, you know, we just talk about Trent and Atticus, like the social network. It's got real light and shade to it as well. But that was like, I had that on in the kitchen a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, from one minute feeling kind of euphoric and, and kind of transported to feeling like I was in a rave. It was brilliant. It took you on a real journey. Speaking of the Mika Levy score, there's another Hilda Gunnar-Dottir as well. She's oh, I love one. Hilda. Such amazing music. But if I ever try and listen to it separately to the film, it's it's mm. too intense and actually you, yeah. you can't get anything done because it's sort of overwhelming. Well, it's just, it's, it's quite distracting because, yeah. and I think that her score for the Joker, you know, and particularly having spoken to, to Todd and Joaquin about it, is that, that his performance was absolutely influenced by what she wrote. She said, you know, she wrote some themes, um, she wrote the Joker theme and got that to Todd just as they were about to start filming the toilet scene, um, the bathroom scene with Joaquin, and it absolutely influenced, and he will admit that it influenced his, you know, his kind of performance in that as well. And so you can't really separate them then, I think. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I heard your interview about that, and I actually, when I went back and watched the scene, He's co- he's totally embodying the sounds, these horrible mm. sounds that she's created. It's such a oh, that whole film is yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I've not. I mean, Chernobyl as well. That was just yeah, mind blowing. And he didn't hard talk about as well what she her research, you know, in terms of what the sounds she wanted to capture to create the soundtrack as well. That's bonkers. Mm. But she's this kind of like this. Iceland, I don't know if you've you've spoken to many Icelandic people, but they have this certain elfish kind of quality to them. It's so beautiful and it's so kind of captivating. And she, you know, the way that she talks and. She's got this really beautiful lilt to her voice. She's so gentle and pure and kind of, yeah. And then she creates this kind of terrifying sounds in a way. It's brilliant. I love that. I love the contradictions in that. So what, obviously you kind of came from a predominantly pop background before you came into this. What was your segue? Were you always a film lover or what was your segue into film music? Well, my dad used to run a little film club. I grew up in a little family-run hotel in Scotland, and my dad had, uh, on a Saturday morning, he used to run a little film club. It only ran for a couple of years, but I just remember, you know, on a Saturday, he'd have this massive projector um, going, and he'd show, like, loads of stuff. I mean, it was mainly what he'd do is on the mornings, he'd have the film club, and then the afternoon, he'd show the football for, like, football fans. And it was, you know, it was a great way of a, you know, little fishing village community of bringing people together, really. 
So I always, my dad always had a great selection of films. And it was things like, you know, we grew up on Disney and my mum was in um, amateur dramatics. So there was always like musicals playing. She played Nancy and Oliver. So I really remember the music of Oliver. Um, and, um, and then I remember <clears throat> being pretty young and younger than I should, well, too young to have watched it, um, The Deer Hunter. And that kind of, um, that theme to it which are, it just kind of really stops me in my tracks even now when I hear it. And that was something that I, it stopped me in my tracks at the time because it was so, I don't know, it was so part of the film and it was, it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is, so music can be, can be emotional within a film. It's not a singing song, you know, it's not, and it was just like it made me kind of take notice of it a bit more And, you know, prior to that, you know, things like Star Wars and things, again, they were there, but I hadn't really stopped to think about it, if that makes sense. You know, they were just, it was part of the world, you know, that did and the scroll starting and all these, you know, all the themes, for, like the, you know, the Vader theme and all that kind of stuff. You were in that world, you were on that trip. Um, but it was only through things like the Deer Hunter that I just remember going, oh, wow, this piece of music really is doing something to me that is tied in with the film and it's telling me stuff about the emotion. And and so that was probably the first time that I really kind of appreciated the sort of music and film. But I think the point that I really took it seriously in terms of not on a classical front, but in terms of the power of music in film and thinking about it and analysing it and was was Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs really. But Pulp Fiction particularly because I was at uni and I was um, part of my degree, one of the modules was film studies and I chose Pulp Fiction as the film that I was going to write my essay on. And so my kind of, my, my college paid for me to go and see that at the cinema six times. And I, it was just... And that from that point on, that's when I started buying soundtracks, you know, the CDs at the time of the soundtracks. And, um, and you know, my, my kind of film history when I was growing up, it wasn't art house. It was all blockbusters and, you know, and Jaws and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't, and it was only really probably when I moved to London, when I was like 20, that I started there was a new world of film that was introduced to me and that was partly through doing a show on film four called Film Spotting with a guy called Toby Ames that used to be at um, MTV and he used to do the movie show at MTV and he was almost like my kind of mentor and he introduced me to so many great films and kind of sent me down paths to kind of go and explore things and go and um, learn about film and I'm still doing that, you know, I... I 
I'm not a film critic, as I said. I'm a film fan and I'm still learning. You know, I kind of, I've been doing this show on BBC Four called Life Cinematic and we've got another episode coming up uh, start next month with Ama Sante. Um, so I've done four episodes on it with Sam Taylor-Johnson, Sam uh, Mendes, um, Sofia Coppola and then Ama. And with all those episodes there's been 12 films that each director's pick that I've then gone and and that has been the most amazing journey of being being you know knowing that I have to watch these films some I've seen before some I haven't and I just love it I love watching stuff I've not seen I love learning about stuff and I never want to kind of feel like I'm going into a situation with a composer director whatever feeling you know as if I know everything I never want to be that you should always go in there with the idea that you're going to walk away having learned something. And that's what I love about the podcast and what I do is that I'm always doing that and I'm always there and I'm never going to, I'm never, there's never an end point, you know, with this because no one can have seen everything and know everything about everything when it comes to film. So when, when you're listening and you have those soundtracks <clears throat> saved to your the streaming platforms or whatever, how do you kind of in, uh, incorporate them into part of your day? Because you work with a lot of genres of different types of music. So what do you turn to and when? It's interesting. I, I, I listen to, I mean, I, trying to actually get control of the sound system in the house with two young children is quite hard. Uh, seven and 12 years have quite strong choices when it comes to music. But what's amazing is already they absolutely love music and film and TV. Um, you know, my my seven-year-old is uh, learning to play the French horn. And one of the first thing, you know, he's like desperately just trying to play something from the Star Wars score from it or um, any instrument. He's He's got this thing where he likes to pick up instruments and try and make sounds from them. So my mother-in-law had a clarinet. <clears throat> she plays the flute. And um, first thing he tried to do is play the Mandalorian theme tune from it. I was just um, about to say that. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so funny so that's quite nice at times that I can I can throw things in and I had the weirdest experience so I was playing um the interstellar soundtrack to Rudy my 12 year old because I love that soundtrack I think it's so beautiful you know this church uh, church organ being the the heartbeat of the score and of the film really um and so I'd been playing that to him in the morning and my husband and I went to see a school for him for he's moving up to next school and we were getting shown around the school and we walked into the music department and the guy was showing us around and goes, oh, let me just take you into this room. They're just doing some, they're working on this great thing where they get the kids to do their own interpretation of a film score. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this place is amazing. We walked in and this kid was playing Cornfield from interstellar and i was like this is a sign this is a sign oh my god it was like you oh, signed him up proper hairs on my i was like yeah we can't afford it but you know oh god um but the hairs on my arms like literally on end and it was just like god that's crazy So I try as much as I can to 
have it around the house, particularly um, score, you know, where where it's not existing needle drop sort of thing. Because I think there's something really lovely. And I've just, you know, I've only appreciated that in the last maybe kind of 10 or so years is, is how classical music has a, I don't know, it's, like, it's almost like a companion type thing in a way. Uh, and but allows you to have your own interpretation of it as well, can help you in a way, um, and can fulfill you in a way, and it can also encourage you in a way. Um, you know, whereas like music with lyrics sort of thing is kind of it's already got something there it's telling you. Whereas I think with with instrumental music, there's there's much more there for interpretation, and I love that about you know I've been playing Morricone over the last. Um, couple of weeks just like literally sticking on the best of Morricone and just having it in the house because it's so much fun but it's been great with the kids because then you like you know you're like let's play Cowboy Boys and Indians because the music's sort of it's great having these almost kind of like encouraging um it's almost a bit like I guess um improvisation in a way you know it's like this these scores can they can incite fun and play in a house in a way because they they generate mood and genre and things, so I've, that's been really fun actually. Um, and I love if I if I if and when I have me time, which isn't very often, um, that I it's what I choose to listen to. Um, and and it's quite interesting. Like I did the classical fix a couple of times, and I found that really interesting. I've been taught and encouraged to listen to to certain things that I would never have, have normally um, chosen to listen to. But it's a world that I would love to learn more about. Um, classical, I feel like I'm very much a novice and I'm very much um, at the start of my journey with it. Yeah, I think film music's the perfect entrance for a lot of people. Film and video game music. Video game music, oh my God. Elan Eshkari's score for um, Ghost of Tsushima, life-affirming stuff, that was just... I was just not prepared for that. It was and it, it was a case of I hadn't even seen any of the graphics for the for the game. It was a case of I'm putting this on as an album, as a piece of music. And there was like 66 cues or something on it and it was like the, by the first one I was in bits. scores that they have for these things are kind of like john williams level and the budgets are oh my god they're obscene. insane yeah yeah yes yeah, it's, it's um it's a world that weirdly we had i've had so many people from so elam was last week's episode and he's done quite a lot of gaming stuff and so many people are like please do more about gaming so i think mm -hmm. i might look at trying to do like a specific kind of gaming month where we we try and you know reach out to quite a lot of um people but you know Pinar was amazing about that about Fortnite you know and she was away at the start when when before Fortnite was like the kind of worldwide phenomenon that it is you know she was she was asked to to work on it and she's got teenage boys and now she's the coolest mum in the world because you know she's she's like done the music for Fortnite it's hilarious <laughs> 
Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, film music as a category is one thing and then it kind of seems to be expanding, like you say, into video games. And now also TV, like you hosted the the Crown's official podcast as Mm. well. How do you feel about the investment in TV and how that's going for music? Are you abreast of that scene as well? Yeah, I think that, I mean, for me, a lot of the time there is no difference when it's when it's a kind of really good production there's no difference between the this you know if 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 you were to listen to martin's score for the crown and and listen to you know a, a kind of equivalent type drama film you know there would be no difference sort of thing and i think there's so much not on every project but i think on on the right things um i mean look at um uh it's a sin recently you know on 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 channel 4 and you know, Murray Gold had a really tricky job on that for for the score because because Russell, there was so much existing music and there had to be, you know, for that world and that scene and and those characters. But but I think what was so clever and worked so well was was how Murray's score um, had such an important place even within that. And I think that. You know, TV is in a very different place than it was 10 years ago in terms of the production levels and how much investment goes into that. Um, so I think that that there's there's not really much difference now between a lot of TV that's being made um, and and film, really. Um, and there's also not, not as much snobbery as there was as well, both in terms of behind the camera, but also in terms of talent, you know, in terms of, you know... It, in years gone by, you'd be asked to do a TV series and you'd think it would be kind of below you sort of thing for, for some acting talent. But now it's it can make people in a way, you know. I mean, look at The Crown as well in terms of how it's able to attract that type of level of, you know, in this next two seasons, last two seasons, you've got people like Leslie Manville coming in to play Princess Margaret. And yeah, that's, I think it's, um, there's not much, there's not any difference. And you look at things like Chernobyl as well and, yeah, not di- much difference at all. How do you view the soundtrack v score? What what is your preferred um, kind of means? Are there any that are particular favourites on either part? Yeah, I don't think that I I don't have a favourite because I think that it depends on the project. Um, I think that um, I think that. You know, like Tarantino, for example, is the way that he use, is, uses existing music. And Edgar Wright is another great example, is so perfect for his filmmaking, you know, in terms of, of, of what he's trying to do. It's like kind of pop culture, isn't it? It's, it's so perfect. Um, and I think that, you know, it's the director's, vision really in terms of whether they see the need to use existing music or whether they want to create score or whether you want to use existing classical music like um uh call me by your name you know is a is a great example of that you know in in terms of of how he chose to use not have a composer but use score existing score so I think that each project is so unique in terms of what it needs you need what what facilitates the film what facilitates the narrative what facilitates the characters and the journey and the arc and what you're trying to say um 
like another round, for example, um, the uh, Thomas, um, I've forgotten his surname now as well, which is terrible because I'm really, I was, I was panicking about how to say it and then, <laughs> and then it just completely goes out of my head. Um, Thomas Vinterberg, there we go. There you go. And, and he, with that, this new film, he's, he's used some really beautiful music, beautiful score, but then there's this end scene um, that uses this this little uh, tra- um, uh, a band called Scarlet Pleasure, a track called What a Life, and it's so perfect for this scene where Mads Mikkelsen just kind of loses himself and does this kind of jazz, inter- you know, dance interpretation. It's 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 so it's so great, and I think that sometimes you can be surprised by the use of existing music and a track that you're familiar with um, in a film, but it's the right choice. And then sometimes it's the it's it, there's no need for it. But like, for example, there's that Claire Denis film, um, Le Beau Travail. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a beautiful film. And at the end, there's this character called Galoop, who's this um, foreign legion um, commander. And so he's so rigid and he's so angry and pent up for the entire film and the closing scene is him dancing to rhythm of the night and it's it just tells you so much about him and it's such a clever thing so i think that's probably one of my favorites in terms of the use of uh an existing piece of music and in terms of score i mean oh my god there's so many but i think that hans zimmer interstellar score is one that i always 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 go back to um, also because the, the 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 story of the score in the film and the fact that Nolan had written a kind of synopsis, very brief synopsis of the film, not even about the kind of genre, you know, of it being sci-fi or anything, more of it being about this kind of family. And uh, he sent that to Hans Zimmer and asked him to kind of, can you come up with, what does this kind of incite in you, I guess? And so Han went and wrote basically that, that kind of key theme on a church organ and sent it back to him. And then that informed the script for Nolan to write. And so I think that that's maybe why I connect with it so much is because it's so entwined in the the actual story. Mm. I love that film a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because although the church organ <coughs> plays quite a big role in, in that cornfield scene in particular mm. in Stella, it kind of, it, the whole score has that slightly electronic shift to it that I think, um, what was the other film you mentioned? Moon. That was another one that yeah. they ha- slightly have. Is that something you're quite drawn to, do you think? Maybe. I, I think maybe it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird because I'm not the biggest kind of pure electronic fan. Mm. So it's almost kind of like a happy middle ground for me, maybe, you know, in terms of I've got this uh, I've got this real kind of af- affection and interest in in what classical music can do. And then I have, I guess, kind of, you know, modern music, so to speak, and, and electronic music. And I guess, I guess maybe the kind of, I'm not a purist in either camp. So that kind of middle ground is, is comfortable for me. Maybe, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. So before I let you go and get on with your day in this horrible rain, um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask you the thing that I ask everyone on the podcast, which is if you were to go on your streaming platform of choice, record player, what would be the last thing you were listening to? Well, currently still, well, on pause, yeah. is the Dimitri from Paris remix of Sister Sledge Lost in Music. Nice! Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a really good version of 
that song. Um, yeah, I DJed. I really had to do this DJ gig for um, someone. Forty-five minutes of like DJing to no one, but they were quite. They weren't totally specific about what they what they wanted to listen to. Um, but it was that was a lot of fun actually. <laughs> Thank uh, God the kids weren't on my my uh, my Spotify yeah. this morning on my phone. That was Edith Bowman talking to me from her home recording studio in London. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world, or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Jack Bateman.